Welcome, friends, to a very special podcast episode on the Bridgetown Podcast. My name's Tyler Staten, uh, lead pastor of Bridgetown Church. I'm here with my good friend Tim Mackey of The Bible Project. Hello, Tim. Hey, Tyler. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah. So if you follow along with our church, you'll know that right now we're in the midst of a teaching series on the book of Exodus. And we have been thinking about Exodus, as we do with the whole of Scripture, as one long story about Jesus. And so Exodus is a book full of events and characters and ways that Creator is interacting with creation, but ultimately it's all pointing to the incarnation, when God comes into the world in the form of a person named Jesus. He lives on our behalf, dies on our behalf, rises on our behalf, and that is the hinge point of the whole biblical story. And so we uh, got to be joined by Josh White last Sunday, who taught on uh, a particular event in the Exodus story called the Passover. And it's really interesting to think about the Passover when you're thinking about the life of Jesus, because Jesus chose Passover weekend Mm -hmm. as the climactic moment Mm. in his life and ministry. This Mm. moment that begins in Exodus becomes the climactic weekend Mm -hmm. in the whole of the biblical drama. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. We don't often, I think, take enough time to think about how much thought Jesus put in to the timing and location of the things he said and did. Mm -hmm. But um, there was no more important place to be than Jerusalem in the precincts around the temple on uh, Passover weekend. It's kind of, it's really hard to find an equivalent. In American culture, it might be going to the White House on July 4th Hmm. or or something like that. But it's it's a loaded location full of millennia of history by his by his time and he chose that weekend uh in order to wrap the events that he was going to instigate there in a larger much larger story which is kind of what we're going to probe and talk about yeah and and the the traditional way that the jewish people remember the exodus passover mm-hmm is in a Seder or a feast. Mm -hmm. And of course, Jesus then gave us a Passover feast that we typically call communion or the Last Supper or the Eucharist, depending Mm -hmm. on your tradition. Mm -hmm. And so we often taste of the life of Jesus connected to this event even. Yeah, that's right. And it's why in in our calendars, if you have Jewish friends, you may know that every time Easter comes around in the Christian calendar that your Jewish friends are celebrating Passover like somewhere really close Mm -hmm. uh, or in the days before. And that's because there's a really important connection between those two. So I think we're going to come back around to that point at the end of this conversation. But it's just important that this isn't just a story about ancient history. This is really a series of events that is a window into the the real deep meaning of what Jesus thought he was doing when he gave his life for for the many on Passover weekend. Yeah, and what we're kind of circling around is that the Passover is one of the most beautiful events in the mm. whole of the biblical drama. It mm-hmm. is one of the places that our hope is most firmly rooted, and yet 
the Passover can be mm. one of the stickiest events in the whole of the biblical drama as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. because this comes as the tenth of ten plagues that Yahweh is bringing on the Egyptian people mm. who are very reticent to let his people go. Yeah, that's, that's putting it mildly. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. and then. Yeah. When you read a teaching text like the one we read last Sunday mm. that includes uh, the mm. the Passover, mm-hmm. not only are we beholding the beauty of what it points to, but certainly mm. there are people in the room that either are or should be asking the mm. obvious question, mm-hmm. how could a loving God mm-hmm. who is slow to anger mm. and abounding in steadfast love mm. as Yahweh claims to be? Mm-hmm kill every firstborn Egyptian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you were asking that question last Sunday, you're asking a really good question. Yeah. And if you weren't asking that question, you should probably have been asking (laughs) that question. Yeah. And so, Tim, I'm hoping that we can just kind of do a deep dive into the sticky part Mm -hmm. of the passage that we didn't get to in our Sunday worship gathering. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. how could God kill a bunch of Egyptian children? Yeah, okay. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's the question. Um, so just to call up the story, because um, it's it's actually important that the night of Passover, and just if those of you listening don't have the whole narrative up in your head, it's the, the, the night before God's going to deliver his people. So it's a great event of liberation of God advocating and rescuing an enslaved immigrant people group. Uh, but he does so at the cost of the lives of the firstborn sons of their oppressors. Um, so in narrative context, let's kind of back up. So um, this is all happening in what we call Exodus chapters 11, 12, and 13. That's the night of Passover. The story got started all the way back in Exodus chapter 1, um, when Pharaoh, king of Egypt, sees the Israelites um, as a group of immigrants who are um, you know, temporary residents in his land. They're multiplying, they're successful, um, they're really abundant and fruitful. And he is, instead of seeing this as an opportunity for partnership and mutual mutual abundance, he gets afraid mm-hmm. of the immigrants in his land. And he begins a program of a slow genocide, exploiting them through slave labor, forced slave labor, and then he begins killing off uh, their children, their sons, mm-hmm. by throwing them first in the Nile River. Um, actually, throwing them in the Nile River is his third and, and final attempt. Um, so what happens is God raises up one of those children who was tossed into the river, and yes. that's Moses the deliverer. In a basket. Yeah, yeah. In, in a basket. Actually, it's called an ark. Mm-hmm. Same word as Noah's ark in Hebrew, but that's a whole other thing. Um, so God raises up a deliverer, burning bush, Moses, sends Moses uh, to represent God um, before Pharaoh to demand that he let my people go. And most of us have seen the movie at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so what happens is um, Pharaoh resists 10 times over. And that's important um, that the, the most intense violent judgment that God brings on this oppressive empire is the 10th and kind of like last resort um, to bend the arm of, of this uh, emperor 
to free an enslaved people group whose first whose sons are being murdered mm-hmm. in a systematic way. So it's important, um, actually, just to think that that's Pharaoh's the one who started this program, and what God is doing is responding in a language that Pharaoh understands. So at at the time that the tenth plague mm-hmm. was you know, I guess prophesied by Moses, you know, I'm not announced. Sure what, yeah. Announced. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So at the time Moses announces the plague, mm-hmm. is the infant genocide of Israelite firstborn children still mm-hmm. taking place? Yeah, the narrative the narrative doesn't say. Uh it was a different Pharaoh. Um so the first Pharaoh that enacted that genocide uh died while Moses was out you know, being a shepherd for 40 years. Yeah. And um, when a new pharaoh arose, that's when Moses comes back and then it all hits the fan and that's where we get the 10 plague narratives. But um, the pharaoh of Moses's day is just as stubborn and w- truly wicked. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I mean, it does seem like what would be fair to say is we yeah. don't have any indication yeah. that there's a pharaoh that's taken uh, over the land that has more goodwill toward the Israelites. Yeah, I mean, he still yeah, right. is resisting mm-hmm. uh, letting go of an enslaved people group mm-hmm. at incredible commitment. Yeah, you know he's had nine plagues. Yeah, yeah, on his land, mm-hmm. um, nine supernatural signs of divine judgment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and still refuses to loosen his grip in any way. Yeah. So, so you're saying it, it seems like historically. I guess it's within the realm of possibility that there's still this sort of genocide going on. And what we definitely know is that it was going on previously. Yeah, it was happening previously, and the enslavement um, and the br- brutal enslavement of the Israelites under really harsh uh, conditions was ongoing. Like that was now generations um, enduring. So... Um, it's important to note that the portrait of Pharaoh is someone who is so committed to the well-being of his empire at the expense of the lives and health, actual lives and health of this immigrant population. Like, that's the portrait. And so um, it's important for us to remember that biblical literature was written from the perspective inspired God, by God's Spirit from authors who were part of a family that lived as a minority, persecuted, ethnic, religious minority for much of its history. Mm -hmm. That's the vantage point from which this story comes. And so um, when you get to the 10th plague, um, again, I'm not trying to excuse anything. I'm just saying it's important to take the whole story into context when we come to the night of Passover. Yeah, this isn't an isolated incident. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, however, when you get to the 10th plague, it's definitely the most intense form. God's sent a plague that decreated their crops. Um, The first plague was the Nile turning, Nile River turning into blood, which was surely um, communicating to Pharaoh that God knows what the previous Pharaoh did by shedding the innocent blood of Israel's sons in that very river. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something important about the first sign being, the first plague being the river turning to blood where Israelite sons were killed. And then the last 10th plague being a warning that the son, firstborn sons of Israel, Egypt would die if they don't let the Israelites go. So in a way, God is giving Pharaoh 
something that Pharaoh never gave to Israel, which was a chance for this all to be over. Hmm. Um, and Pharaoh stubbornly refuses 10 times over. So, you know, those are some aspects that can give context to it, but they really don't solve the moral problem. You still have to sit with this moral challenge. Um, and, you know, you said as we started talking, if there isn't something in this story that's a portrait of God striking violently in some way, whatever that means to say, we'll talk about that, but taking the life of the firstborn sons of Egypt because of what one man or one man and his you know, leadership regime has done, there's something that I have noticed inside myself and every person I've ever read the story and processed it with <laughs> in church or classrooms, that there's something that you're like, I kind of get it, but I also kind of really don't get it mm -hmm. at the same time. So I think it's just important to name like, that is okay. Not only is that okay to have that feeling when you're reading scripture, um, it's actually really important that you don't ignore that feeling. And um, God is not offended when we're confused by God's behavior in the Bible. Yeah. I, I think he can deal with that. Yes. Um, and I think it's also important to name that part of the reason why somebody would have that um, confusion inside is most likely because their moral conscience has been shaped by the teachings of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, that life is a sacred gift of God that is to be valued and protected at all costs. Like that also comes from the Bible, right. the message of the Bible. So it's not really about being skeptical of the Bible. It's trying to understand how these different parts of the Bible fit together if they are all portraying one and the same God. Right, yeah. If this is a portrait of Jesus who said, turn the other cheek. Yeah. What happened with the Passover? Yeah. Yeah. And at the risk of pulling back the curtain, <laughs> much of this teaching series came out of lunches that you and I were having mm -hmm. where you were schooling me on Exodus. Mm -hmm. And I, I can remember one particular time we're sitting eating curry <laughs> and you are unpacking this question for me. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. not only how can I ever explain this to others, but... Yeah. How do I understand this? Yeah. Because I don't want it to be an aspect of God's revelation of himself that I just kind of look away from and pretend it isn't there. Yeah. Nor yeah. do I want it to be an aspect of who God reveals himself to be that forever trips me up and stagnates yeah. my my spiritual understanding or maturity. Yeah. And so how yep. do we make a way through something like this? And you broke it down in four different mm -hmm. Uh, vantage points, maybe. I don't know how you would describe yeah. that. Yeah, I just call it four features of the story that have helped me. Mm -hmm. They haven't solved this moral dilemma for me, but they've helped me. And they brought me to a place where I now feel I can have moral integrity before God to bring my questions and lay them. And I feel at peace about it, though not fully resolved. And knowing that that Resolution will have to probably wait till I can hang out with Jesus in the new creation. Yeah. Along with a lot of other people who have been asking the same question for a long time. Because the question is, why, how does it make moral sense for God to hold children accountable for the sins of their parents? Mm. I mean, that's really part of, that's what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Children are dying 
for the sins of Pharaoh and however many of his regime were responsible for what was being done to Israel. There's four features of the story that have been helpful, helpful for me. So the first one we've already kind of named. Um, there's a feature in biblical narratives where biblical authors will often show how God's justice is worked out in history where God brings about the evil that someone has done to come back on their own head eventually. Um, so in biblical studies, this is called just the measure for measure principle. Actually, Jesus names it in the Sermon on the Mount. Right. Don't judge or else you'll be judged because with the measure that you judge someone else, you'll be measured back yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's this principle, do to others what you want them to do to you. So here, um, the death of the firstborn is God doing to Pharaoh what Pharaoh did to Israel. So we've already kind of talked about yeah. that. Um, except God is offering Pharaoh and all of Egypt something that Pharaoh never gave Israel, which was a means, a way out, a way out of this death sentence. And that's what the night of Passover was all about, that uh, you could go into a house, any Israelite or Egyptian could go into mm -hmm. a house where there's Israelites, and they offer as a substitute this lamb, um, and then uh, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, and then that house will be spared from the act of judgment. Um, so there God's portrayed as offering mercifully something that Pharaoh never did. But um, what God is also doing at the same time is bringing back upon Pharaoh's household and his land what he has been doing to Israel. So it's just important to like name that. God, is, there, is there any uh, historical evidence that Egyptians actually took shelter oh. like the Israelites yeah. did. Yeah, that's a good question. Did, did any Egyptians take gods out, yeah. I guess? Yeah, yeah. the narrative doesn't say. However, um, the fact that someone could go into a house and be spared from one of the plagues has happened before um, in the plague of the hail, um, which was one of the earlier plagues. And Moses announced, if hey, anybody, just take your animals and family and get in a house. And what you hear is that there are Israelites and Egyptians who fear the word of the Lord and they go in the house, but there's mm -hmm. a bunch who don't. And then the consequences play out. So what that leads you to believe is there's a lot of Egyptians who are taking Moses seriously at this mm. point. And we know a lot of Egyptians went with Israel out of Egypt because we're told in the, in the right. story when they leave that a whole bunch of different kinds of people went, not just Israelites, left. So that leads you to believe there are a lot of Egyptians that participated in Passover, yeah. but it's, it's subtle in the narrative. Mm -hmm. So I, I just the point of this first observation is that God is responding in kind to Pharaoh. Now, on one sense, that on one level, that makes sense. But also, you're, if you've been shaped by Jesus' teaching, there's another piece where you're like, but I thought Jesus said, you know, kind of, you know, yes, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And he's quoting from the measure for measure principles from the Old right. Testament law. And he said, turn the other cheek. So why isn't God doing that here? So that's a great question. And and I do think it's also probably worth acknowledging before we jump into yes. po to point two, that yeah. God is responding in kind, mm -hmm. but not entirely in kind. Th that's true. Yeah, because it isn't right. someone hit me, so I'm hitting them back. Mm -hmm. It. God started with like the I know what you did last summer plague, yeah. right? Like yeah, yeah, the yeah. blood in the Nile. Yes. And yeah. then repeatedly showed 
mm-hmm. Pharaoh mm-hmm. what he had already said to Moses. I have indeed heard the cries of my people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's showing him, I, I have heard and I remember. Yeah. yeah. And you will let my people go one way or another. And then eventually God mm-hmm. uh, ups the ante to the point where he's responding in kind. So that's it's probably right. just worth acknowledging that yeah, that is that's the, right. That's right. the narrative, but it's still the point you were driving toward stands, which mm-hmm. is, but Jesus doesn't say, turn the other cheek unless you've been hit nine times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, he you know, says 77 times. Right. That, that principle. So we're just asking, how do those go together? Exactly. Or if we're meant to try and make them go together. So um, maybe some of these other features in the story can can help with that. Um, second feature actually is a little bit of Hebrew nerdiness, which is about what does the Hebrew word for Passover actually mean? And uh, this is a deep rabbit hole, super interesting. We don't have enough time to cover all the details. Um, if you look in Exodus chapter 12, um, verses 12 and 13, um, you get the appearance of the word Passover uh, for the first time. It's used as a noun to describe the event itself, but that noun comes from a verb. Um, So the the Hebrew noun for Passover is Pesach, and then the verb is Pasach. Um, So if we're reading, I'm just gonna actually read this passage. Here's, uh, and what I'm not gonna do is translate Pasach as Passover, I'm just going to say the Hebrew word when we come to it, because okay. there's a little puzzle here. Um, so this is Exodus 12, 12. This is God speaking to the Israelites. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And that word pass through is the Hebrew word for pass through. I pronounce avar. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of Egypt, from human unto animal. Against all of the gods of Egypt, I'll perform acts of justice. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. I am Yahweh. And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I will see the blood and I will pasach over you. And there will be no strike for the destruction when I strike upon the land of Egypt. Hmm. So God's going to pass through the land and strike. But then when he comes to a house that has the blood, he's going to pasach. And when he pasachs, there's no strike upon that house. Hmm. So um, it could be that the, you, it would, you could u- use the English word Passover and think, well, I guess he passes over the house and like doesn't do anything to that house. <clears throat> um, the problem with that is if you actually study the use of this word in Hebrew, um, and this is, I'm going to try really hard to be concise. No, cause... it's okay. This is my favorite. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know how in English, um, we have words that are, we call homonyms, mm-hmm. where you have actually different words with different backgrounds and histories, but we spell them with the same letters or they sound the same when we say them out loud. So I read a book that's a red car. Right. Sounds, sounds the same, mm-hmm. but it's spelled different, right? R-E-D is color red. I read R-E-A-D, I read the book. But we also have words that are spelled the same and pronounced the same, but they're actually different words. Um, I read a story, I live on the second story. Oh, exactly right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, thanks. No problem. I got <laughs> homonyms on tech. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, there you go. So um, it turns out 
that there um, are uh, the use, if you study the use of this Hebrew word, you'll find a handful of uses where pasach means like skip or hobble or limp. When Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal on mm-hmm. top of Mount Carmel, this is what the prophets of Baal are doing when they're cutting themselves and like somehow Oh, they're, gyr- they're dancing they're around or something. Gyrating yeah. around the altar or something. Uh-huh. And it's this word to hobble or limp around, maybe some kind of ritual dance that they yeah. were doing. And so um, that use of the word pasach is the only way you could get the meaning Passover out of that verb, hmm. which is kind of weird to think of God hobbling over a house or skip, you know? Yeah, um, <clears throat> gyrating around the <laughs> <a> house. <laughs> totally. So here's something that's interesting. Um, the ancient uh, Jewish scholars from hundreds of years before Jesus who spoke Greek and Aramaic and ancient Hebrew, when they were translating the Hebrew Bible into the languages of their day for mm-hmm. other Jewish readers into Greek and Hebrew in what we call the, the Greek translation, the old Septuagint, mm-hmm. or Aramaic targums or translations, when they, you can look up their translations of this passage, and they consistently use Aramaic or Greek words um, for protect or defend when they translate this word Pesach. Hmm. And there are actually uses of the same exact word in the Hebrew Bible in Isaiah, where this word clearly means to defend or protect. Hmm. And now all of a sudden, that little detail makes sense, where God said, I'll pass through the land of Egypt and strike the firstborn. But if I see the blood on the house, I will Pasach, and there will be no strike on that house. So it's and I'm not making this up. This is like Hebrew scholar nerds for a long time have thought yeah. this, that um, word pa- pa- Pesach would be more accurately translated um, defense or protection, the night of protection. And what Yahweh is doing is actually protecting the house. So the, it, I will pass through mm-hmm. and strike. Mm-hmm. But what was the next phrase? When I see the blood on the house, when I, see the blood on the I, house will I will protect. protect the house and there will be no strike. Hmm. Now that just creates another puzzle that's the third feature of the story. Yeah. Who is striking then? Exactly, right. exactly yeah. right. Yes, okay. So here's another little puzzle. And this is totally, this is Hebrew Bible. These authors are wizards at their craft of storytelling. And... Um, you have to pay close attention because the biblical authors will lead you down a path to think you understand what's going on, and then they will throw a curveball. Yeah, it's probably important to note, just for the average listener that doesn't read Hebrew, mm-hmm. that, <laughs> that words are not left to chance in the Hebrew Bible, they, right? That's right. It's yeah. written very rhythmically. It's written very intentionally. Mm-hmm. And when read in Hebrew, mm. there's often... Uh, a cadence to the text mm-hmm. that is unlocked that, that you know, this is an imperfect analogy, but might mirror mm-hmm. more how poetry is written in English, mm-hmm. where it's, mm-hmm. this is a form of writing mm-hmm. that isn't just uh, freelance storytelling, but is a very yeah. intentional type of storytelling where yeah. each word is chosen mm-hmm. to punctuate the point as mm-hmm. clearly as possible. And so we're picking apart the linguistics, mm-hmm. but that isn't a reach that's actually how yeah. this text was written yeah. to be interacted with. Yeah, it's how Jesus read his Bible mm-hmm. and um, how everybody in his tradition re- 
were, was taught how to read mm -hmm. these texts because that's how they were designed to be read. So when you um, engage with what we call Exodus chapter 12, and you just ask the question, who is striking the firstborn? You will come across four or five times where Yahweh is saying to Moses, announced to the people and to Pharaoh, I, and God speaking in first person, I'm going to go through Egypt and I will strike. Um, we already read like a passage where, where God says that. Verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt and I will strike. Verse 13, uh, when I strike the land of Egypt. <clears throat> Verse 27 um, says, this is the night of Passover when Yahweh struck the Egyptians. Verse 29, it came about in the middle of the night that Yahweh struck the firstborn of Egypt. So it feels very clear. However, I've read just four passages um, from chapter 12, but yep. there's actually five times that the striking of the firstborn is mentioned. And if you look at them, the, f the middle one, and biblical authors do this all the time, they'll design whole paragraphs in this mirror kind of symmetry. And the center time, the third central time in this chapter that the striking is mentioned, it's in verse 23, and it's interesting. It says, Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians. He will see the blood on the doorframe and on the doorposts. Yahweh will Pesach over the door, and he won't allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike. Now, before you go any further, mm -hmm. so you're saying that this form of writing where there is, you know, uh, <clears throat> a message delivered, Mm -hmm. Let's say there's let's say there's A and B here. Mm -hmm. So it's A A B A A. Mm -hmm. And that would be common mm -hmm. in Hebrew literature to yeah. maybe draw attention. Is that to draw attention to B, mm -hmm. the middle one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I could every paragraph of the Hebrew Bible is designed in some way like this, where okay. the literary organization is actually an important clue to what the author is trying to say. And so here you have all these um, repetitions of I will strike, I will strike, I will strike. And in the very center of the whole section, it's he won't allow the destroyer to enter a house to strike. And that's a way of highlighting that, that mm -hmm. central statement that, oh, there's, some, there's a little more nuance going on here. Yep. So if, ya, if, if Pasach means to defend, now we have an, a sense of who Yahweh is defending the house against, and that is the destroyer. It's just called the destroyer. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is going back to um, the most ancient Jewish interpretations of this from before the time of Jesus, um, consistently the destroyer was identified as um, either an evil angel, what we would call like a demon or the Satan, or the angel of the Lord, like the one that Joshua encountered, the guy with the sword. Yes. Or like that David encountered with the plague on Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. But either way, it's a, it's a being who, with Yahweh's permission, but distinct from Yahweh himself, has allowed um, to introduce death and chaos into the land. And I, this is a huge mega theme about Yahweh's justice in the Hebrew Bible. Um, but the biblical authors have a much more sophisticated view of how God works in the world than we typically allow for. Hmm. And the depiction here 
it's a, it's a repeated theme throughout the Hebrew Bible that when human societies reach points where they are so they have so redefined evil as good and good as evil that Yahweh will hand a whole culture over to however long it takes the outworking of their choices that lead to death and self-ruin. And that self-ruin is often depicted as Yahweh handing people over to forces of destruction. This is what's happening in the flood waters, for example, um, where God unleashes the flood waters. It's the waters that do the destroying. In fact, it's the same word. And of course, Yahweh allowed it. It wouldn't happen if Yahweh didn't allow it. But it is Yahweh allowing this other agent to, to bring uh, the ruin onto the land. So and, what I'm hearing you say, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just trying to translate for normal people like yeah, myself. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm hearing you say is less like Yahweh didn't want to be the one to strike, mm. so he unleashed one of his minions mm -hmm. to do his dirty work for him. Mm. And it's more like, what we encounter in Romans chapter one, mm. where it says God gave them over, mm -hmm. you know, essentially mm -hmm. uh, people wanting something other than Yahweh. Yeah. Yeah. Long enough for hard enough that God will allow reluctantly mm -hmm. the human heart to have what it wants. Yep. Is that e even if what it wants is bringing about death and ruin for ourselves and the people around us? That, that's one aspect of this. Okay. Another aspect is just going to feel strange and foreign to us, but it's how the biblical authors, and it's how Jesus, if you really probe his teachings, this is how he saw the world, is that the biblical authors view reality as we experience it, as this little oasis of goodness and order surrounded by a dark nothingness hmm. out of which God summoned all creation with his powerful word this generous, good, and creative word. And at any moment, if God were to relax his sustaining, ordering word, uh, the oasis would be swallowed up by the chaos and death. Mm. And that's how death is depicted in the biblical story. That's how sickness is depicted. It's an eruption of chaos onto the good ordered land, which is why sickness and demonic um, influence is linked so closely together in the stories of Jesus Yes, because they're joined in the biblical imagination. That's very hard for us to imagine, and it's taken me a lot of work to figure out how I could get my imagination to that place, and you can do it. It just takes a lot of work. <laughs> um, but So for Passover, the portrait is there are forces at work. I think of plague, sickness, death, constantly beating at the doors. And there are times when Yahweh, like in this story, will relax his protection um, over those who don't want to come over the protection that Yahweh has provided through the blood of the substitute lamb. And for those who want to fend for themselves, when Yahweh um, allows the destroyer to pass through, then good luck against the destroyer. And in this sense, it's similar to the hail Yes, where that, it's, that's exactly right. Hey, I'm relaxing my destruction, and mm -hmm. I'm letting, or I'm relaxing my, my protection. Protect yeah, that's right. And mm -hmm. I'm letting you know in advance, mm -hmm. because here is a way that w even while chaos infiltrates, mm -hmm. I will place my hand over you yep. and protect you. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And so that leads 
to the fourth feature of the story that I said we'd come back to. Mm-hmm. Exodus 12, 12 is another one of these little curveballs that brings the idea that appears only here in the whole story. And it reads, I'll just read it. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt from human to animal. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will do acts of justice. I am Yahweh. So the night of Passover is portrayed as an act of God holding accountable both the human power structures of Egypt and the spiritual powers that the corrupt and distorted powers of Egypt are in league with and expressing their evil um, distortion uh, into the land as well. In other words, Passover is an act of judgment against both human and spiritual powers, Hmm. Um, which again might sound very bizarre to us. Um, We should remember that Egypt, Egypt's whole conception of what who the Pharaoh was, was an incarnation of of their prime deity, which was kind of changed over Egyptian history, but of the sun god, of the chief deity. Um, So the firstborn son actually would be, the firstborn son of Pharaoh would be the next incarnation of the god in line um, to rule in his father's stead. So the death of the firstborn is the death of a rebel god in the way that they see the world. And once again, we're kind of butting up against the biblical authors have a really different way of seeing the world than we do. Well, and and so does Jesus, to be fair. That's exactly right. right. Jesus speaks this way all the time. I mean, there's so many times when when you would rightly say, so is Jesus talking about Rome Mm -hmm. or is Mm -hmm. he talking about demonic forces? That's right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right? Yeah. He's... Speaking about both, the same thing happens with Babylon later in the uh, drama of the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. So this is this is thematic. That's right. And perhaps, uh, perhaps the biblical authors are not archaic. Mm. Perhaps we Mm. have disenchanted or despiritualized a world Mm -hmm. that Jesus Mm. and the authors of the Bible. I would say, in partnership and under inspiration from the Holy Spirit, mm. insist is actually charged with a spiritual drama mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have to step back and ask yourself, how does a whole society reach a place where it defines as good to oppress, enslave, exploit, murder a whole immigrant people group in its midst in the name of, I mean, what Pharaoh's afraid of at the beginning of the story is the military security and economic security of his land. How does a culture get to a place where it becomes good to do that in the name of those values? That's what this story is about. And you could say, well, it's just misguided humans, you know, and if they were more educated, like, I guess that would solve the problem. And you just have to you know, let's be realistic about human history. <laughs> like, yeah, that's this what is, I was going to say. This is, is not ancient history. And this it doesn't seem to be just like if humans understood atoms more, like right. we wouldn't do this to each other anymore. Like that's so clearly not the case. And the biblical authors invite us to see a much more rich and um, 
intense view that there are other powers uh, at work in our world. And Jesus saw himself confronting those powers on the night of Passover uh, in Jerusalem, thousands of years after this first uh, Passover confrontation with Egypt. Mm. It's also, you know, you mentioned if we just grew more enlightened, had more education, that kind Mm. of thing. It's probably worth noting that the closest parallels to the way you just broke down Mm. uh, what Mm. is really going on in Egyptian society at this point and Egyptian culture, Mm -hmm. the closest parallels are much closer to home Mm -hmm. than we often are comfortable acknowledging Mm -hmm. and are very recent in terms of human history and are in parts of the world. Yeah where broad and free access to education mm-hmm. is actually quite common. Mm-hmm. Like some of the most objectively educated parts of the world mm-hmm. have been, uh, have enslaved peoples mm-hmm. in a similar brutal fashion mm-hmm. yeah. for the same kinds of protections. Yeah, yeah, it's just to, yeah, just to name it, it was a, a, Christian, whatever that means to say a Christianized Europe, mm-hmm. a highly biblically literate Christianized Europe uh, that engaged in the transatlantic slave trade, mm-hmm. right? In the 17th through uh, 19th centuries. So it's important, like this isn't, there's nothing ancient or primitive about this. And uh, Jesus looks at it and he sees the result of a mutant hybrid of human redefinitions of good and evil, and spiritual rebels at work um, trying to ruin God's world as well. And, um, you know, on the night of Passover, when Jesus had the Passover meal, um, he, he redefined the Passover meal around himself and what he was about to do in, in Jerusalem. And the whole story of the Gospels have been portraying Jesus as God's cosmic firstborn son. Um, And Jesus marched into Jerusalem with the full conviction that that he was the firstborn Passover lamb Mm -hmm. who would offer himself in the place of something terrible that was about to go down in Jerusalem if Israel didn't pay heed to him as as their Messiah. And when, when he's arrested in the garden, in Luke's, the Gospel of Luke's account, uniquely, when the temple guards, these are other Israelites coming to arrest him in the garden. And what he says to them is, this hour belongs to you and to the powers of darkness. Hmm. So Jesus similarly saw his confrontation with the powers of Jerusalem as being against human and spiritual powers, which is precisely how the Exodus story is portraying the evil of, of Pharaoh. Yeah, and the night of Jesus' arrest is probably the fitting place for us to land. Yeah. Because I imagine that someone listening to this may have a similar reaction to what you acknowledged when you started, Mm -hmm. of all of these things are very helpful Mm. (laughs) in understanding Mm. the character of Yahweh Mm. and how the good character the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love character of Yahweh hmm. could be revealed even in a series of events like the 10 plagues culminating in what we call Passover. Yeah. 
And yet, while they help, they don't quite solve the puzzle in a way that has me sleeping like a baby at yeah. night and never <laughs> asking any other questions. Yeah. And so it's so important that mm. we remember that this is chapter two mm. of a long redemption story. Yeah, that's right. And that this is not the final way mm. that God deals with evil. Mm-hmm. That the final way God deals with evil mm. is by becoming the mm. sacrifice. That's right. Becoming, coming among us as the firstborn. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, what God subjects the firstborn of Egypt to, God subjects God's own self to. Yes. In surrendering the Son of God to die for the sins of the many. Yes. So, whatever medicine God is dishing out, he takes his own medicine. Yes. And um, if I'm a follower of Jesus, trying to account for the morality of God in the Exodus story, I cannot separate it from the ultimate response that God has to the evil of our world, which is to come among us as the firstborn, to surrender his own life yes. for others. And that doesn't solve the riddle completely. Um, but it does convince me that whatever the character is of this God portrayed in the story, this is a God who advocates and fights on behalf of the oppressed. And he's also the God who will die for the oppressed and the oppressor yes. in order to redeem both. Yes. Um, and you can't get that just by reading Exodus, but you can get that by reading Jesus as the fulfillment to the story begun in the Exodus. And that does help me. I still have questions, um, but it, it has helped me. Yes, and I, I would say you equally can't get all that Jesus is doing mm, mm-hmm. in the garden mm. as he stands trial mm. silently mm. and as he allows his own creation to brutally kill him. Mm. You can't get all that Jesus is doing if you ignore the Exodus either. Yep. Yeah, that's right. This is a lens that magnifies Mm -hmm. and expands uh, the power of what God is doing, not just in a moment in history, but across human history Mm -hmm. in the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I would commend to just those of you listening to um, open up Hebrews chapter 2, two and three as um as you know maybe after we sign off here um there the author of hebrews retells the story of the death and resurrection of jesus as confronting a cosmic pharaoh who he calls the the slanderer in our english bibles it's the devil which it's a title it means a slanderer and he calls he calls the devil the one who has the power of death who has enslaved us all through fear of death And he depicts the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the way that Jesus, as the substitute, gained victory over the cosmic Pharaoh. And so, in a way, Hebrews is offering a reading of both the Exodus story and the story of Jesus as a a cosmic tenth plague um, to defeat death by surrendering his firstborn son to it. And there's a great mystery here. but it's important to just that just that point that um we're just in the second scroll 
of the story of the Bible when we encounter Passover in the book of Exodus. Yeah, well, Tim, you obviously through the Bible Project share your ongoing uh, love of the biblical story broadly. And we're so grateful that you're a part of our community, Hmm. um, that your family calls our church home, and that in this medium, in this way, as it's important to this church's story at this moment, that you would help us grow in love for the written word and the living word Hmm. that is Jesus. So thank you, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to talk. Thank you.